The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. Throughout the book of Psalms, the most dominant type of psalm that we find is lament. And those laments carry on through the rest of the writings. Lament is about pain. It's about my pain and a real God who is there to assist. And flowing right out of the book of Psalms, we come to, in Jesus' Bible, the book of Job. Job is a difficult book. My wife and her own Bible reading has just started Job in the last week, and she's wondering what to do with those two dozen chapters of interchange between Job and his three friends. I mean, we've got massive parts of the Bible that apparently are filled with bad theology. God says, Job spoke rightly, you spoke wrongly about me to Job's three friends. And so we're going to take a couple of weeks here to try to figure out this book, a book that is very weighty, that has an unbelievable picture of our God. There is no small God in the book of Job. There is a massively big God in the book of Job. And if we believe that all Scripture is without error, then we must listen to even the words of the narrator who passes on to us not only Job's response, but then gives clarity about God's perspective on Job's life and gives declaration about the rightness of Job's assertions. Job is wrestling deep in his soul with real pain. And he has friends who are looking at his life and saying, I know how God works. I've read Deuteronomy. What Deuteronomy says is those who obey God enjoy blessing. Those who disobey God will gain curse. And God is always faithful. Your life is filled with hell, a living hell, Job, and therefore we know what happened. You have sinned. Jesus' own disciples in The New Testament, John chapter 9, had the same idea. They look at someone who is blind and they say, who sinned, him or his parents that he was born this way? Jesus says, you need to have a greater understanding of God's sovereignty. It is not because this man sinned, but it is rather in order that God might be glorified. And then Jesus goes on and heals the man. If we just read part of our Bibles, we can often be led astray in misunderstanding our God. We need to be whole Bible people and then try to fit it all together. And then what we'll find often is that, man, this God is so big, I cannot put Him in a box. So sometimes we just have to step back and we don't gain the answers that we're looking for. The book of Job is going to raise a massive question, and it's going to answer it, but it's not going to answer it in the way that often we want God to answer it. The big question, why do the righteous suffer? 
And this book is going to have a remarkable answer to that question. But it will not answer the question, why me? Why this hard and why this long? It doesn't go there. It never gives us that answer. Instead, it answers the question in a very different way, a much more profound way that I I think if we can get our hands around it, if we can understand what God is trying to display to us in this book, it will help us more than the other kind of answer will. This answer will help us through the deepest valleys of this world. When deep in our soul we have great loss, great pain, real, real pain. When we taste the reality of the curse in our lives. Death, destruction, disease, loss. When we feel it, what does God want us to have to bring us through it? And in this book, it's not the answer, why me? Why this hard and why this long? It's a different answer. To that end, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would now meet us. We so desperately need to hear from you now because so many of our lives are filled with lament. And if not today, then very likely tomorrow. We need a picture of you. You've given us your book that we might know you. Now let us know you today. Let us see you and be able to savor the kind of God you are. May we not run from you, but may we find you as our only hope. A God who is as big as the God of Job. I pray that you would meet and minister in this room today. I pray that my own fleshliness would not get in the way. And that you would do a work here grounding those in this room to tackle life's trials with trust. A trust in a God who is unswerving and who is in control of everything. Everything. That is who you are. We need that kind of a God in order that we might have hope. So bring hope today. Bring hope today. In Jesus I ask. Amen. The books in the Bible come to us in various forms. We've already seen it in the Psalter, how we can have laments and we can have thanksgivings and we can have praises, and they can be packaged in certain ways. So if you happen to be walking down the road, no, better yet, say, your daughter's room. And you are walking through the room and you see something down in the corner and you you pick it up. Nobody else is around and you happen to open it. And it says, Your eyes are like the sunshine. When I look at you, My heart beats fast. I'm a dad. I don't want to tell you anymore of what it says. (laughs) So I see this and I'm reading it. And then at the bottom it says, Love Jarvis. 
it's obvious I haven't just uncovered a last will and testament. (laughs) I found something. It's written in a certain way, and it's communicating something to this dad that I might have to watch out for someone, right, who's pursuing my daughter. Now, Job comes to us as a true story. There's nothing in it that would suggest it's, it's not a true story, but it's been packaged in a certain way. The way it's been packaged is as if it were a play. You could read this story and picture in your mind the characters spread out on the stage. A curtain rises and there's a man. A man, and then there's a narrator over here who begins to tell us about this man. What he says is, let me find the beginning of my book. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And the spotlight is over there. And the narrator is here and he's beginning to relay to us a story. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that the man was the greatest of all the people in the East. It's setting the stage. And then the light goes down, and on the other side of the stage, the lights rise. And now we enter into the first scene. A scene that is part of the first act. And the scene takes place in heaven. And then it will shift to earth, and then it will go back to heaven, and then it will shift to earth again. And then the rest of the book's going to stay on earth. And everything that's happening on the earth, it does not, never does the story tell us that we're gonna, that, that those people on earth actually are able to understand what's going on in heaven. But we as the ones watching the cosmic drama play out know more than even Job knows. We know the question that this book is seeking to answer. It lays itself out in a five act drama. There's even an intermission. So let's take a peek at it. The prologue opens, and this is where we get Job's dilemma. It starts not with Job, but in heaven, with God raising the stakes. Satan comes in along with the other sons of God, short for the angels, and they're all gathered around Yahweh, and God initiates a conversation with the Satan. My ESV doesn't have the in front of it, but every occurrence of Satan in the book of Job has a definite article in front of it. The word Satan simply means accuser or adversary. So that's his role in the cosmic drama. He is the accuser and adversary, and God raises the question, so where have you been today? And the fact that he's called the accuser, the adversary, suggests that God is raising a question regarding his specific role in space and time. Where have you been looking in order to accuse me? Where have you been looking to build hostility against what I'm working? And Satan responds. And then God initiates, have you considered my servant Job? It's radical. 
And that starts the story. Job is doing well. We've already been told in the, in the stage setting context that he's very wealthy. He's got ten children, seven sons, three daughters, lots of goods. And he's a very pious man. Not only pious, but authentically pious. The narrator calls him blameless and upright. And then we learn that he has this patriarchal priestly role that when his children... I mean, it's, it's kind of the presentation of like a Jane Austen movie. I watched those and I'm like, was there really a time in history where people didn't have to work? They just kind of, you know, the movies are all about the people who get to gather in the home and they're just reading books all day. And, and some of you might say, well, that's what you get to do. And it, it almost is. But, but it's like they just have this money that's always there. Anyway, so the, the sons are at their house and the daughters get to come over and, and they all are just celebrating and Job would pray for them. He would take on this priestly role, it says in verses 4 and 5. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. He would rise early in the morning and offer a burnt offering according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. He's operating as a priest on behalf of his children. The narrator has told us in verse 1, he was blameless and upright, he feared God, he turned away from evil. And God, unbeknownst to Job, sets the stage for the adversary, the accuser, to make Job his target. And Job's not the only one in the world that's had this happen to them. Where God has his child on his mind. And in having his child on his mind, he sets up a stage wherein the child will enter into deep suffering. And God hasn't forgot him. No, he is on the mind of his God. When we first moved to Louisville, Kentucky in 2000, uh, for me to do my Ph.D., and, and it's where I pastored, we entered into the church that I would become an associate pastor in, and there was an interim pastor at the time, and he was preaching in Romans 8. And the first day we came, he was preaching on the text, where in your weakness, in the midst of suffering, when you feel that God is the farthest, know this, the Spirit of God is interceding for you with groans that you can't even express. And he said, when you feel like God is the farthest, know this, God is absolutely near. He is so near that he's, he's built into the system where he would have one person of himself, the Holy Spirit, praying to the Father on your behalf. And then it says that God always listens to the will of the Spirit because the Spirit knows the will of the Father. God had Job on his mind, and God was working to a certain end. But Job isn't going to understand any of this. We know more than Job does. But we have to read all the story, all the interchange, all the dialogue in light of this original opening prologue. Then we move into Act 2. And it's a very extended act, chapters 3 through 31. And this is where all of us can easily get lost. Now who's talking? What's he saying? Where, what am I supposed to get out of this? I mean, there's Job. I, I can understand his words, but 
His three friends, they actually sound kind of like I do sometimes. I mean, Daroshi likes Deuteronomy, and they seem to like Deuteronomy. In fact, there's echoes of Deuteronomy throughout this book, which suggests to me, Job was, I mean, in chronological reading plans, often Job is put up front. I don't, I'm prone to think that's not true. I think this book was written much later. But he interacts with the three friends, and then he goes on this extended discussion. We get all the friends, and next week I'll unpack how these are structured, how these speeches are structured, and then we're going to see that right where we would expect one of the three friends to talk, Job actually talks, and that's supposed to tell us something. And Job begins to talk, and it shifts in chapter 27, his extended response with a meditation on the nature and source of wisdom. And this becomes the intermission in the, in the book. It's like, where did chapter 28 come from? He just starts talking about where is wisdom found? I, I don't have my hands around it, Job says, and that's part of the message of the book. It comes from God, who bestows it as he wills upon every man, wisdom. But in the process, our first step toward aligning with God's definition of wisdom and understanding it rightly is to fear him and to keep his commandments. That's what it says in chapter 28. When life doesn't make sense, when you can't get your hands fully around it, we know what God's will is for us, that we would fear him and keep his commandments. And Job provides an example of that. Not perfectly, but really. Now Job begins to, after this, Job enters into a defense. And his defense is actually in building a case against God for why God should be giving him good rather than harm. He's absolutely certain that he hasn't done wrong. He's not claiming perfection. In the book, he declares himself a sinner, but he is also going to say, I'm forgiven, I'm I'm upright, I'm standing right with God, and, and I am certain that all the loss that I've experienced and the personal pain that I'm in is not due to my sinfulness. He's absolutely confident. He's worked through that. And there's nothing in the book that tells us that that assertion is sinful or wrong. That he can actually know for certain this isn't because of my sin. But then he takes an added step and he begins to actually play the same card that his three friends have, but on the opposite side. God, I'm absolutely right. And that means you're unjust to be letting me feel the way that I am. To be letting me experience what I have. And then Elihu enters in out of the blue. He's the only person in the whole book who has a Hebrew name other than Yahweh. Elihu, El is God, the E is my, and who is Yahweh? My God is Yahweh. That's his character's name. And he enters into the saga. He's there and then he's gone. He says some things about God's uprightness and God's justice and being able to do whatever he can at any time. And then he's gone and then God takes over, and for four chapters, God talks. And this is, without question, the climax of this whole book. Everything is heading that we as a people who experience suffering in our own lives would be able to hear what God wants us to hear. And in the end of Yahweh's speeches, we feel very small because he's spent four chapters to declare how big he is and how little we know. And at the end, Job's mouth is shut. 
And then we enter into the epilogue and God concludes the book. Distinguishing the wheat and the chaff, and then there's a happy ending for Job. But a happy ending that is only happy at the level that it is in light of the pain that he's experienced. That's how it often works, isn't it? We, we enjoy the light so much more or better. We enjoy the warmth so much more after the winter. It's, I mean, when 35 degrees can feel like, woohoo, take off the winter coat, you know? When I'm jogging in 35 degrees every fall, I'm like, this is not good. Something changes. We appreciate and revel in the gifts so much when we've had them all taken away. So today we're going to focus on the prologue. That's where we're going to head, and I pray that God would meet us. Open the curtain on Act 1. Here's the structure. We get the setting in verses 1 through 5. Then there is... Round one. Round one of Satan versus Job, or Yahweh versus Satan, more accurately. This is ultimately not a battle between the work of Satan and a human. This is a battle between God and the devil. In order for God to prove something, through his human instrument, to prove something to Satan. And so I want you to ask, keep it in your mind, what is the challenge? What's the nature of the challenge that has to be answered? What's the question that God wants the devil to recognize the right answer to? The devil's going to raise the question. But there is a heavenly confrontation between Yahweh and the devil. Then Job experiences earthly suffering. Then in round two, you've got... Another heavenly confrontation, Job's earthly suffering, and then there's an added element that we didn't see in the first part that leads us in to let us recognize that in round two, or test two, that test two actually continues beyond the prologue. Because enter in the three friends who are mourning with Job, and you and I, the reader, are like, okay, what are they doing there? How's this going to play in? We begin. Job's piety, progeny, possessions, and life pattern. Let's look at verses 1 through 5. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. Uz is somewhere in the Transjordan. We would call it Jordan today. Somewhere across on the east side of the Jordan River. But the Bible, in the three other texts that mention Uz, place it, it seems, in three different spots. So... It's over there somewhere, and it's going to be depicted as, here's a guy who lives somewhat um, independently with his own uh, center, massive servants, massive family, lots of wealth. He's like his own entity, kind of like Abraham is portrayed as, I mean, Lot gets taken off, and Abraham and his 300 household servants, 318, get, go after five kings. That's a pretty big household. And this is the depiction that we get of this guy Job. He was a man who was blameless, says the narrator, blameless and upright, 
Blameless doesn't mean perfect. Blameless means he was above reproach. He was unable by the public to be able to be blamed for anything. Blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. This is the narrator talking. We only know God through the words of this book, and the words of this book are given to us by narrators. Our entire portrait of God, as declared through these words, come to us through humans, and we have to believe them. So when the narrator talks, the narrator even has more authority than the prophet, like Samuel. In the, we're reading the story of Samuel. The narrator is the one who's determining which episodes in Samuel's life we even know about. It's possible that the prophet could be messed up, like Jonah was, and the narrator be the absolutely inspired commentator on the events. The narrator himself has the highest authority in the book. He is the one that God is using to actually let us hear from God. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. The man was blameless, upright. He feared God, turned away from evil. We have to believe that that's the truth. There was born to him seven sons and three daughters. So we move from piety to progeny. He's got a big family. Then we move to his possessions. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 cattle, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys. I have no idea, really, what that would mean, but it seems like a lot. And then he has very many servants so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. That statement right there would suggest that the book was probably written before David and Solomon or after David and Solomon. Because David and Solomon take on that role from God's perspective among the Israelites. So during this time, if there are kings in Israel, none of them even match Job. And because we don't hear about him in in those dialogues, most likely he's coming before, I think, just before David and Solomon would have risen to power. So his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each on his day. And I already read these verses. He's operating as a patriarch or Patriarch, yes, he has this authority spot, and his function is priestly. He's serving on behalf of his children, taking them before God, just in case they have sinned. Now we move beyond the setting, and now everything gets significant. The heavenly confrontation. Verse 6 sets the stage. And what I don't want us to miss is that who's in charge? Just look at verse 6. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before Yahweh, and the Satan also came among them. People are moving toward Yahweh, not away from him. Yahweh is, without question, right from the beginning of the story, the one who is over all things. The angels are coming to meet him, and Satan was among them. Satan is under God. The Bible will not let us have a dualism. The very fact that there is good, 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 seven times over, very good, in Genesis chapter 1, means that it is not 
things that are we would call bad and things that are good equally eternal because then you have no standard upon which to weigh the value. You couldn't call one good and one evil. But Genesis 1, from the very beginning, declares certain things good, which means there's one ultimate standard. This isn't a dualism where... You have two competing powers forever. No, Satan himself has to move before Yahweh, and he's under Yahweh from the very beginning. And then Yahweh is the initiator. Notice what we have. Q&A 1. First, the sphere of Satan's accusatory power. Verse 7. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? And Satan said, From going to and fro on the earth. From Walking up and down on it. What does this suggest? Satan's sphere is an earthly sphere. He is an adversary to God, specifically in space and time where you and I dwell day in and day out. That's where Satan is working, though we cannot see him often. We see the fruits of his labors. But he's down on earth, going to and fro, and because he's... His name is the accuser, the adversary. That suggests that his role. So the sphere of his accusatory power is specifically in the realm of the earth. And God's the initiator of the question. Then, Q&A 2. The object of Satan's next attack. The Lord says to Satan, Well, in the process of your accusation, your adversative activity, have you considered my servant Job? God puts his hand on this man. He's my servant, not my enemy. And in the midst of suffering, we need to remember that. Oh, how we need to remember that. Not the enemy, my servant. And he says to to Satan, notice how God talks. He talks just like the narrator. There's none on earth like him, a blameless man, an upright man, who fears God and turns away from evil. God himself testifies, that's my view of this man. And simply because Job's going to have bad times come, doesn't mean he's God's enemy. Indeed, God is 100% for him before any of the crisis hits. And he remains 100% for him all the way through the crisis. So the question is, are we to suppose that this dialogue that God has with Satan is continuing numerous times over throughout history, like even right now? And I am I'm not against that idea. I, the one caution I have is specifically Revelation chapter 12, which in talking about what happens um, at the birth of Jesus, that Satan is thrown down in a unique way to earth in order to bring great evils about. That he was cast down in a unique way. um, And it at least makes me scratch my head and say, does he still have this interaction with God? But his instrumentation as an agent of God's working, we're going to see, is very clear. It's going to continue on into the New Testament, and we're going to point to that later.
But I, I, it may be very possible that Satan continues to go up and God has these conversations with him. That, that may be possible. There's been an estrangement. Um, Satan's end has become cert, uh, all the more certain. And um, he, he's bringing a level of false teaching and persecution, the two elements connected with the Antichrist, that at a level of kingdom hostility that we don't see pre-cross. Um, and 1 John 2.18 says, You've heard that the hour is coming and that the Antichrist is near. I tell you, the Antichrist has already come. The spirit of the Antichrist is alive and well already among us as they anticipate the ultimate Antichrist. And the, the spirit of the Antichrist is false teaching and persecution. There's a, a higher level of tribulation that has entered in upon the earth. And I'm wondering, does that mean that, that Satan has now no longer been allowed to have this kind of talk with God? So, listen to how Satan responds. Verse 9. This is so foundational for getting our hands around this book. Does Job fear God for no reason? Why does he fear you? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But I tell you, Stretch out your hand and touch all that he has. Remove those possessions and he will curse you to your face. All of a sudden, that taunt sets the stage for the book. What's this book about? It's about wrestling with the question, why should believers continue to fear God? Work out your salvation with fear and with trembling, for it's God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Why should we continue to fear God? We fear Him only because of what He gives. That's Satan's perspective. You put a hedge around his life. All is well. He is not experiencing suffering. And as long as he's not experiencing suffering, oh yeah, he'll follow you. He'll display you in his life. He'll give you lip service. But bring hell into their lives... And they'll curse you to your face. And God's the one who set up this test. Which suggests that this is about, this book is about declaring how worthy God is of our trust. He is worth our trust even if everything gets taken away. Let's see how it plays out. Satan says in verse 11, Stretch out your hand, touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Okay, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. You can't have him, but you can have everything else. And all of a sudden, I mean, th this gets weighty because he's not just going to take away a house. Human lives are going to die over this test. People that Job really loved, that his wife birthed. Don't think this is a game. Just God up there saying randomly, oh, go take them out. No, there must be something more great at stake because Job is his servant. 
He loves Job. It makes me think of John chapter 11. Lazarus. The narrator, two different times in the, in the setting of the story, says, Jesus loved Lazarus. The messenger comes. Your, your servant Lazarus is dying. Jesus waits. And then the messenger comes. Lazarus is dead. And then Jesus says, This death was ultimately in order to bring about, to display my glory. And then the narrator comes in one more time. John says, Jesus loved Lazarus. Jesus let Lazarus die. Jesus loved Lazarus. God's passion for His own glory is not separate from His love for us. But believe me, it is very hard for us in our smallness to put it all together. How is this loving God? How how does this fit? And this book is not going to answer that for us. But it is going to give us a, a different answer that I think will have greater, ultimate, long range satisfaction for our souls. But this is going to, it raises tough questions because this is real pain, real suffering, real hurt, real loss that is real evil. It's evil. And I'm not afraid to say that. It's evil. Because it's part of the curse. So, Yahweh gave guidelines, just don't touch him. Now we move on. Here's the test. Here's where it actually enters. God is now not the actor. We don't see him, but, but God's in charge. That's already been set. Satan now doesn't show up in this instance. In test two, he's going to be mentioned. Test one, he's not mentioned. All that we read now is this. Now there was a day when the sons and the daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And all of a sudden, there is this rapid fire. Messenger 1, Messenger 2, Messenger 3, Messenger 4. I mean, to even try to think about it, you can picture it on a stage. But all of a sudden, you and I are the watchers and we're getting overwhelmed. Just hear it. There came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding feeding beside them, and the Sabians fell upon them, took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Now while he was speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he's saying it, I have escaped to tell you, in comes the next character. The the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. And while it's coming out of his mouth, here comes the fourth guy. While he was yet speaking, there's another. Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. Behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Foreigners from the south, fire from above, foreigners from the north, and wind from all sides. 
wiping out all that Job possessed and all of his family. It's no strange thing then that Job, when he's reflecting on this, what does he say? God will not turn back his anger. Beneath him bowed the helpers of Rahab. All throughout the Bible, that image is one of evil. The great beast at the end of the age is called Rahab. It's the depiction of what Pharaoh was at the Exodus. The workers of evil on earth are Rahab, and they were his helpers. He crushes me with a tempest, multiplies my wounds without cause, without cause. He will not let me get my breath. Do you, messenger one, messenger two, he can't even pause to reflect on it. It's, I mean, he's just been caught up. I can't even get my breath. He fills me with bitterness. Job's response. First off, his posture. Look at it in verse 20. He rose and he tore his robe, he shaved his head and he fell on the ground. And he worshipped. The narrator could give us so many more details, he doesn't. He's he's intentionally crafting the story as he wants us to, to get it. He wants us to be awed. Satan is supposed to be awed. There's bigger things than even your peers watching you when suffering hits. The heavenlies have their eyes looking to see how you will respond. How you will display the worth of your God. It does not say he didn't grieve. No, the text says he tore his robe, he shaved his head, He fell onto the ground. All of those are expressions of grief. That is right. And what's also right is trust. When you've got a God who's as big as Job's, you recognize, where else can I go? You alone hold the words of eternal life. Where else can I go? If you are indeed, if everything comes from you, where else can I go if I need salvation? Notice how big his God is. It's not only his posture, it's his pronouncement. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked shall I return. Yahweh gave and Yahweh took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Notice something. This is not the outsider consoling Job with right theology. We've probably all been the recipient of right theology at the wrong time. You know, when the the words are true, I know that, but there's no empathy here. That's not what we're getting here. This is someone who's experiencing the pain of loss on their own, and they are recognizing, where else can I go? And he's not making his God small in this moment. He's reminding himself of how big his God is. And he's not, he hasn't explained it. He hasn't told us why God is doing this. He's ultimately going to tell us, I don't know. But he is unswerving in the rock that is his God. 
God gave. God took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And Satan is saying, he will curse you to your face if you take it all away. And Job doesn't even know about that conversation. But he was the servant of the living God. And when faced with this kind of terror, I mean, it came overnight, all was well. And it came in a moment. I mean, as quick as four people can come and tell you in overlapping stages. It's all gone. It's all gone. And his disposition, when his life gets shaken up, We often, like I've said, we don't know what's on the inside of our cup until it gets shaken. What comes out? We're often known much more by our reactions than our actions. What's really on the inside? And when he gets shaken, what comes out is, God gave, God took away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And this is so radical, it would take an unbelievable encounter with the mercy of God an unbelievable vision of his greatness and his bigness and his worth, his love, to be able to have that disposition. Now there are some who have said Job was wrong. To have a view of God that is that big, Job was wrong. But notice the inspired narrator in the very next verse. What does the narrator say? Job was pure. Notice it says, The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Period. Quotation marks in our ESV. And the very next line, the narrator says, Don't think that Job was wrong. No, in all these things, Job did not sin with his lips. He didn't. And as we're going to see, his wife recognized that he didn't. He maintained his integrity. It didn't mean he wasn't broken. No, he's grieving from the depths of his soul. But in the moment of his valley experience, he's doing what he needs to do. He's looking up. He's looking up. May God help us be people that when our cups get shaken, we have such a deep grounding in the bigness of God. God, help us. Help us in our unbelief to have such an unswerving groundedness in your greatness, in your worth. Hold our hearts that what comes out is worship. Now there's a challenge here that is not foreign to the rest of the Bible. The challenge is God over all things and Satan working underneath God in, in, this, ter- in this challenge shape. What do we do do with that? Look at 2 Samuel 24. Here's how the narrator of Samuel portrayed David's census. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David. Who did? The Lord incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. But when the chronicler, who is also equally right and equally inspired, talked about the exact same event, what did he say? Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to take the census. Well, was it Satan or was it God? And we don't have to choose. Or how about the Apostle Paul? To keep me from becoming conceited. 
Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that I had seen, a thorn was given me in the flesh. It could have been his eye ailment that we read about in the book of Galatians. An ever-present seepage that made people actually look at him and turn their faces away. Yet God commends the Galatians that they didn't turn from him. In a way, it could have stopped them from hearing the gospel. We don't know. It could have been persecution too. But, but Paul prayed three times that it would be taken away and God wouldn't take it away. But notice what he says. This thorn in the flesh was given to me and then he defines it as a messenger of Satan to harass me. To what end? To keep me from becoming conceited. And we all know that's exactly why Satan works. He doesn't want us to become proud. He wants to keep us God-dependent. Right? That's Satan's role. No, that's not his role. But God can use him, a messenger of Satan, the very illness or problem, whatever Paul is experiencing, was indeed a messenger of Satan to torment him. And yet when it says, to keep me from becoming conceited, this shows that there was a bigger God on the throne. And Satan was merely working in a way that would magnify the worth of God. So what does God say? No, I'm not going to take this away. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more in my weakness, for when I am weak, He is displayed as mighty. That's what's going on in the book of Job. Lesson from test one. So here's the query. Does Job fear God for no reason? Stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And what we learn is this. Yahweh's worth is greater than the one's possessions or family. If we're willing to accept it, if we're willing to plead with God, may I not put my hope in riches, but put my hope in God. Celebrating when he gives it, but if he takes it away, he gives and takes away. We say, blessed be the name. Blessed be the name. Yahweh's worth greater than possessions or family. The next confrontation, we can get through this quicker. Once again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves, chapter 2, verse 1, before Yahweh. Yahweh is again supreme. Satan came also with them. The question and answer, exactly the same as in the first confrontation from where have you come from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down it he had already tried with job it didn't work so he's working to try to accuse others other believers who will fail he's looking for them professing believers and god says let's do a renewed attack in order that my servant Job might experience what it means for me to be his helper again. That he might be overwhelmed with a very present help in his time of trouble. Let's do this again. Have you considered my servant Job? Notice how God talks about him this time. 
blameless, upright man who fears God and turns away from evil, here's God's view, he still holds fast his integrity. Although you incited me against him to destroy him, and notice, without reason, that's God's perspective. This did not happen because of Job's wickedness. It was without reason. Yes, for sure. That without reason does set the stage for understanding all the dialogues, all the accusations of the friends that are trying to say, no, it's for a reason. And it, what their, their picture is the reason is your sinfulness. It's intriguing. God does have a reason behind this. A reason behind the test. It's to answer Satan's question. Does he fear you for nothing? But the reason doesn't relate to Job's wickedness. It's not that. No, actually, the whole test is driven by the fact that he is a man of true integrity. Not perfect, but really, really a servant of the living God. The whole test would fail if he wasn't. The book would fall on its face if he wasn't. There is a cosmic battle a cosmic portrayal of the worth of God. This isn't just random happenings in the world. No, God is working with every individual, every person in this room, taking us through our own journey in order to display His great worth and in order for us to feel His great love. And with every story, every story in this room, multiplied with every story that's in that room, multiplied with every story that's gone global through the believers throughout all time, everyone is declaring the cosmic worth of God and the radical love for God for the broken. There's great things happening in the midst of our pain. Unbelievably big things happening. We don't have to make them small. We can take them up to the level that Job takes them. At a cosmic level, the worth of God is being declared in a way that Satan cannot understand. God says, okay, you can have him. Well, here's what Satan says, sorry. Behold, skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his own life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and flesh, and he will curse you to your face. All that he has, he'll give for his life. And Jesus says, How does, um, You fear man and you'll lose your soul and your body in hell. But fear God, fear the one who can throw both soul and body into hell. Don't lose it. Don't lose it. Whoever loses his life will gain it. Whoever fears his God. Here's how it works out. The source and nature of Job's physical pain, he gets sores all over his body. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, he was struck. And he was struck specifically, it says in verse 7, by Satan. Job's response, his posture, he took a piece of broken pottery to try to relieve his own pain. He's scraping off the sores while he sits in ashes. His wife's plea. She's stumbling to the very thing that Satan said would happen. The outsider is saying, just give up. Curse God and die. And Job, the authentic believer, 
It's captured his soul. God will not let him go. So much so that God is willing to put a cosmic challenge on the map. He is so certain that he has Job's heart that no level of suffering will push God's love away from Job. He's willing to risk cosmic testimony of God's worthlessness. But it's not really a risk. Because he has Job's heart. And he is certain that as hard as it gets, he will not let Job go. And it's evidenced by Job's perseverance. You speak as one of the foolish women who would speak. Shall we receive good from God and not also receive evil? Hear that. Blindness is evil. Down syndrome is evil. Car accidents are evil. Cancer is evil. But it's not happening in a random universe. The only hope we will have in car accidents and cancer is if God is on the throne, even if we can't understand Him. We need a God who's that big. And then once again, the testimony comes forth and all this Job did not sin with his lips. From where then does wisdom come, Job will ask? Where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all the living. It's concealed from the birds of the air. I don't understand what God is doing. His wisdom is beyond me, but I will fear Him. I will follow Him. Where else can I go? He alone holds the words of eternal life. Abaddon and death say, We have heard a rumor of wisdom with our ears. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. God understands the way to it. He knows its place. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it, he searched it out, and he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom for you. You want to know how to get your hands around what I'm doing? Here's where it, this is the only place to begin. Fear the Lord, turn from evil, that is understanding. Here's Paul. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. Feel the weightiness of that. That's real. It's okay to just lift up our hands and say, I don't understand why it's this hard, why it's this long, why me? I don't understand it. Oh, the depth of the wisdom and the knowledge, the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Not me. Who has been his counselor? He never asked me for help. Who has given a gift to God that that he might be repaid? God doesn't owe me anything, for from him and through him and to him are all things. All things. To him be the glory forever. Somehow Job got that posture in life. He didn't make God small in light of how hard his life got. God did not become small. His suffering was not an opportunity to run from God. It was rather an opportunity to display the absolute worth of God. Because in his brokenness, he found God as a help. Why would God grant suffering? It must be for his glory and for our good. We know that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So can we believe that in his putting us in a position where we need help, that he's working 
out of love for his servant. God's magnified and we are satisfied when we as believers find help from him. These are heavy, hard words, but oh, how beautiful they are. Because this world will move us into valleys, and if we don't have an unshakable foundation that says our God is this big, the God who is still on the throne when the cancer hits, when the tuberculosis comes, when the car accident hits, we need a God who can, even if we can't understand why he's let this happen, a God who is still so big that when he declares, I will never leave you or forsake you, that it's real. That no suffering can separate us from the love of God. Neither death, nor destruction, nor persecution. Nothing, nothing on earth can separate us from that love. And it didn't separate Job from it. He was filled with questions. And next week we'll look at some of those. Wrestling internally with what's going on. But this is certain. God is wise. And He is loving. And in him alone is our hope found. Let's pray. Father, you are our Savior, the only one in the world. And so with Job, we look to you, our rock. You gave, you took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God, that is not easy. But I pray that when we find ourselves in the valley, that we would turn in the midst of our grief to trust. And that in that we would find a rock that displays cosmically to even the things that are unseen your worth. And in doing so, experience your love. In Christ I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the Kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.